0: Assalamualaikum and welcome to Constitutional Matches. With myself, Zakira Desai, for the second episode of our new exciting show, marking the 20th anniversary of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. As a seven-part series, Constitution Matters brings to light a joint venture on progressive constitutionalism by the Voice of the Cape Radio, the National Body of the Students for Law and Social Justice, and the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. The Constitution of the Republic of South Africa was approved by the Constitutional Court on the 4th of December. 1996 and took effect on the 4th of February 1997. The document has subsequently been acclaimed as one of the most progressive constitutions. Now in this episode of Constitution Matters we discuss transform- transformative constitutionalism focusing on whether or not we need race-based and gender-based affirmative action to achieve transformative transformation and if this kind of distributive justice is consistent with the constitution. Now, in studio, we have Professor Lauren Kahn and Tanya Magaisa. Professor Kahn, we know that you are a leading voice on this topic. Can you tell us more about your work
1: in this field? Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm not quite sure about a a leading voice on this topic, (laughs) but I'm certainly passionate about it. Uh, In terms of my background, yeah, I lecture in constitutional law at the University of Cape Town, and I did practice previously for four or five years in public law. Um, And I've recently become particularly interested in this topic given its prevalence, its relevance, its poignancy at this moment in our democracy. Um, And in fact, I've just recently penned an article on redress measures in the context of a recent Supreme Court of Appeal judgment that deals with the question of whether or not quotas in the insolvency industry could pass constitutional master so it's a it's a developing body of jurisprudence mm. and I think that there is there is room for academic insight and certainly shared knowledge in this I'm arena. sure
0: yes and uh, Tanya can you provide us a brief summary of the SLSJ
2: okay yeah I can so SLSJ is a national body which works to achieve social and economic equality in South Africa by getting uh, students to become actively engaged and, at a very early stage in their academic careers. It's, um, it's uh, they use the law in order to um, to achieve in order to achieve um, social justice. So they're deeply committed to leveling social and economic uh, disparities in South Africa. And they do that by ensuring that the earlier that a student starts, the better society will become because it's the student Mm. who will eventually become the administer of social justice, especially the legal student. Yeah, this
0: is definitely an exciting venture. I know this is our second week going in, and uh, just before the break, we'd like to just remind our learner, uh, sorry, our listeners, to join the conversation via WhatsApp on 0722380712 or SMS us on 47913. So we take a break now. Okay, our technician says we carry on. Uh, this happens. So, Tanya, if you could tell us more, why is it why is this constitute why is constitution matters so important within
2: South Africa today? Oh, well, it's pretty important because as because a lot of South Africans don't understand how the constitution works and they don't understand what kind of rights and benefits that are, are conferred to them by the constitution. It's a very exclusive kind of discourse. It's mostly legal academics and judges who talk about the constitution, and the society doesn't understand how they can use the constitution as a tool to achieve justice for themselves. Especially when you're talking about people that come from marginalized and disadvantaged uh, communities, they don't have the kind of education that's necessary to give them access to constitutional rights and constitutional debates.
0: And Professor Khan, if you could weigh in, how significant has the constitution been in terms of realizing the rights of the citizens of the country?
1: Well wow, that's actually quite a loaded question. I think uh, I think first of all it's important to understand that the Constitution itself is of course, it's a document, it's a piece of paper and it's not so much the Constitution that does the work, it's the state actors that are required to implement it. So a very common theme we're seeing um, in discussions regarding the constitution and its value in society at the moment, is is does it matter? You know, people are questioning its value. Um, and very recently, we heard the former deputy chief justice Moseneke speak on the subject, and he, you know, he mentioned that we shouldn't conflate the the promise of the constitution with its implementation. And of course, that requires diligent you know rigorous good governance Mm. Um, and I think insofar as we haven't seen that much of of the latter the Constitution is not delivering fully Mm. on its promise but as a document um, which holds the aspirations of our nation it's, it's, it's beautiful you know I mean there are some flaws in its in its design, which I've raised with my class um, that have exacerbated some of the problems we see playing out today in our democracy. for example, the fact that the legislature isn't really meaningfully able to hold our executive to account. Um, but on balance it's 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 a lauded document the world over and its transformative vision is impressive. The question is, Are we really transforming society in line with this vision and that is open to debate because of course we see that the speed of transformation is is not really there you know there's an urgency why are we still seeing you know a lack of housing why are we still seeing a lack of access to education and that really comes down to the, the state actors that have to implement the vision of the Constitution.
0: Definitely, the document is for myself personally. It is definitely a beautiful document, and I think it represents what we as a nation is aspire to be. So, just in moving to in in moving to chapter uh, section nine of the constitution, we know that today we are focusing on gender-based and race-based. Uh, Inequalities within the country. So, if you, uh, Professor Khan, could provide us with a brief understanding of of Section Nine, sorry, of the Constitution, what does it entail? And uh, if you could provide a brief account of which rights it includes.
1: Okay, so, so Section Nine of the Constitution is entitled simply Equality, and it's the first specific right that appears in Chapter Two, which is the Bill of Rights, and. It is, I mean, one of the things to note, perhaps even before I I delve into this, is, and I'm sure Tanya will elaborate a little bit here on a practical level, is that when we read this provision, we see one of the ways in which our constitution seeks to be a transformative document. So it's important to read it with that in mind. So the section begins by stating in subsection 1 that everyone is equal before the law and has the right to the equal protection and benefit of the law. Now that is essentially this notion of formal equality, the idea that everybody needs identical treatment, irrespective of the starting point, irrespective of impact. So we assess the abstract individual um, based on personal merit. Now, subsection 2, which follows it, says equality includes the full and equal enjoyment of all rights. That sort of hints to the instrumentality of equality. You can't enjoy other rights if you're not really equal. And it goes on to say that to promote the achievement of equality, legislative and other measures designed to protect or advance persons or categories of persons disadvantaged by unfair discrimination may be taken. So it's important to understand that section 9, subsection 2, Complements section 9.1. They're not. They're not mutually exclusive. Section 9.2, which contemplates affirmative action or redress measures, is not an exception to the equality guarantee. It doesn't derogate from the value of equality. It in fact adds to equality. So it's a it's a it's a clear recognition of the fact that our constitution espouses a notion of equality which is substantive in nature, which is which seeks to better society by recognizing that in certain instances we need to see difference to level the playing fields. And you speak in particular about race and gender, which are the, probably the two most prevalent ways in which we still need to redress yeah. that imbalance.
0: Could you then provide a provide clarity on substantive and formal
1: equality? So yeah, so substantive equality is, is about Taking, treating people differently in certain respects in order to level those playing fields. So recognizing that, that sometimes you know, we need to treat people differently. And this is why affirmative action or redress is constitutionally compliant, because it, is, it seeks to do that. Uh, formal equality seem, means that we simply see people as identical little abstract you know, paper dolls. Um, I see Tanya would like to. I think she perhaps yes, might so
2: want to wait, add Tanya. practically. So um, I just wanted to add that uh, one of the notions, one of the most important notions of transformative constitutionalism that any UCT Foundation student will ever tell you is that our constitution is a deci- is a decisive break from an oppressive and violent system, uh, of, uh, one of which is segregation. And uh, it's stripped a lot of people, the majority of black South Africans, and by black I mean Indian, and I also mean. Um, Colored people of their fundamental basic human rights, and those most affected were women of color, and um, substantive uh, substantive fair equality of opportunity grapples with the many disadvantages that are imposed by society. So, it grapples with the aspects of disadvantage where you don't have control, right? It's society would decide what well, that decides for you. Um, what kind of disadvantage you have? So. If you're you're born into a world where your race or your gender or your sexual orientation doesn't confer certain benefits, so if you are born um, black and female, you're already socially uh, at the bottom of the social hierarchy strata, whereas if you are born white and male, you're right at the top, or if you're born white, male, and heterosexual. So that's what it's grappling with. I think that that, that this is an important uh, aspect to mention when discussing substantive equality, because a lot of people will always argue that... You know, substantive equality is a form of reverse racism because you're not um, you're using race as criteria. And uh, for and the thing is, race is criteria for disadvantage because a lot of people look at your race to decide what kind of person you are.
0: Just uh, can we keep in that in mind that uh, so? But when we get back, we'll continue this conversation after that break. <laughs> Welcome back to Constitution Matters, I'm your host Zakira Desai. In this episode of Constitution Matters we discuss transformative constitutionalism focusing on whether or not we need race-based and gender-based affirmative action. We remind our listeners that they can weigh in on the conversation by whatsapping us on 72 or sms us on 47913 now before the break we were discussing substantive equality professor khan can you add to that conversation we know that tanya she made valid points uh and we know that you wanted to weigh in on that so if you could just add to that conversation before we move on to the
1: next Yes, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think Tanya raised some really salient issues there, and in particular, she said, you know, what matters is disadvantage where the person in question doesn't have control. And of course, certain categories are indicative of that, as she pointed out, whether you were born a woman, whether you were born a person of colour, and so on and so forth. But I think it's important to, to qualify that by saying that when it comes to substantive equality, the notion of disadvantage that is addressed in Section 9.2 of the Constitution is not a static concept, so it includes new forms, past discrimination and past forms, but also present. And this idea of intersectionality, you know, that often we have, it's not as simple as just because you fit this mold, there's a tendant disadvantage. It's about intersecting forms of disadvantage very often. So it's important to note that it's not so much the group characteristic that's the issue, whether you're a person of color, whether you're a woman, whether you're able-bodied and so on. But it's the disadvantage that, that comes with that. And so it may be that in time, as we see playing fields hopefully start to be leveled, that we may need to consider overlaying, for example, issues of status or class and so forth with for example, race, to ensure that these measures are, are nuanced, that they are balanced, that they actually respond to the lived realities on the ground. Because that's what substantive equality is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about responding to an existing reality and addressing past systemic problems that ensue today still. Um, it's not about dishing out equality in a vacuum or in an abstract or in a silo. So, you know, we need to actually see as as the playing fields change and as they hopefully are leveled how do we perhaps introduce greater nuance or balance into that because where formal equality is about you know formality i suppose Uh, substantive equality is about flexibility, that inbuilt context sensitivity.
0: You mentioned systemic equality or systemic racism, if if I may. Uh, What can we say in terms of systemic racism continues to this day? Because we've seen over the past, even week, we've noticed that there's been incidents of what many described as racist incidents. How can we then say the constitution protects us as, as, as citizens of the country against this? And what has the the country done in order to address
1: this issue? What has the country done? Or what has the government done in that? Hmm. Wow, that's a deep question. I mean, look, I think racism is a continual problem. I think that speaks perhaps more not so much to arguably the the matter of affirmative action or redress measures, but rather to the issue of unfair discrimination which, which rears its head under Section... Section nine, subsection three, um, and also to hate speech. Um, so, in, so just to move on, because I mean, you did ask me at the outset just to canvas the, the content of the section nine equality guarantee. The state may not unfairly discriminate directly or indirectly against anyone on one or more of the following grounds, including, and the first ground is race, and then it goes on to list gender, sex, pregnancy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, read with subsection nine five, that is presumed to be unfair. Um, once it's established to be on one of those grounds, section 94 says that national legislation must be enacted to prevent or prohibit unfair discrimination. So, to speak to your question about what is what is the country, what is the state doing, there is an act, the so-called Equality Act, Papuda, um, which deals in particularly with issues of unfair discrimination and and hate speech when perpetuated by private actors. So, where the state is is passing a law that that invokes this Equality Guarantee. It's tested directly against this provision in the Constitution. But where you've got private parties that are making racial slurs, that are treating their employees in a way that is discriminatory and so forth, there is legislation that is aimed specifically at targeting this and addressing this. But as Tanya also pointed out at the outset. You know, most people don't know where these rights lie, let alone how to enforce them, and that's why programs like this are so valuable. You know.
0: So then, if you could take us through, what can a, a an employee, for instance, do if he does feel that he's a victim
1: of? Uh, well, look, in the labour law context, there are more complexities um, because, of course you know that's that's also a discrete area of law but but if there is discrimination on one of these grounds then that that can and indeed must be pursued in the right avenues tanya do
0: you want to add anything here no (laughs) okay so moving to this issue of gender-based equality tanya can you introduce what do you feel is the main issues regarding gender-based Inequality and equality within South Africa at present, we know that there's many issues with regards to the payment of women And there's this, this discussion around whether or not women are seen equally within, with its business or whether it's in their private
2: lives uh, So if you perhaps would like to weigh in here Okay, I think what I, what I, can, what I can add to this conversation really is that uh, Again, we're, we're, de- we're describing the difference between formal and substantive equality Is that on paper women are equal and on paper, people will advocate feminism and or advocate egalitarianism. But when it, beca- when it starts to encroach into the private sphere, when it starts to affect your daily lived realities, that's when people become a little hesitant to confer certain rights or benefits to a marginalised member of society because it deprives them of certain privileges. So I think that's one of the issues that a lot of women have to grapple with, the fact that you're dealing with a society where... Well, the males are the dominant um, mm. members of society and they are not easily willing to give up certain privileges to to ensure equality because they want to earn more. They want to be seen as um, the more intelligent, the more powerful. They want to be the, the breadwinner of the family, the, the provider. I'm not saying this is all men. I'm not generalizing, so, so people should realize that I'm not <laughs> generalizing that what, what, what men um, alike, but this is how society has perpetuated gender roles in, in, in the world. And second to this is that women have more responsibilities, especially in the home life. They are they are they are, they are caretakers at home as well as. Um, P- people who have to work outside of the home so they have to look after the children they have to make sure the food is cooking the house is clean and on top of that they have to go to work so they've got like this double job that yeah. men often don't have I'm not saying all men but most men maybe can I say most men is to not to generalize we are not generalizing, generalizing <laughs> making sure we're not generalizing um, but a lot of men don't have to deal with this kind of double uh, sort of sh- double shift that women have and The fact is that society needs to find a way to accommodate this kind of situation for women, right? It's not fair to tell women either don't have children and have a successful career or have children and get paid less. Or even the the fact that a woman simply because she's a woman is getting paid much less than a man. It makes no sense. You know, if we're equally qualified, there should be something done about the fact that I'm earning less than a person... Who has the same qualifications as me but different genitals? Mm. That doesn't really make much sense. And uh, I wanted to, to to discuss the the issue of um, pro- I mean class is one of the mm. things that uh, Professor Kahn was was discussing, and um and I do agree with you. I don't I don't completely disagree with you, but I do think that sometimes when we look at class, because this is m- mostly what people think about when they think about privilege, they think about financial privilege, mm. and they don't realize that. A person can be financially privileged and still be socially disadvantaged because money does not erase prejudice. It doesn't erase racism and it doesn't erase sexism. Maybe it can mask it in times where people need to benefit from you financially. right? So you've got wealth that people need to benefit from or you're in a position of power that people need to benef- benefit from. But the true nature of society is that prejudice still exists even if you are... Economically advantaged, but I don't think that people should look only to race and to gender as a proxy for disadvantage. I think we should look at it more holistically and recognise that it's not necessarily like Professor Khan was saying the characteristic, but the disadvantage that the characteristic um, comes with that uh, causes yeah. the disparities.
0: Professor Khan, if you could uh, come in here and just uh, give a bit of an understanding of what Tanya has been saying in terms of where, if it's not race. If we if we can if we if we say that race is not the main cause for the sense of I, I i have i have been given access to a job i have been given access to financial freedom what then could we say is other causes for um for the inequality we find today what then is the feeling of i have not been given my my my, my access to rights yeah i mean i think
1: i think tanya's raised a very valid point then i think you know these categorizations like race like gender they matter you know and we can't just gloss over that i think we I think we would be unwise to do so when, you know, as you say, 20 something years into democracy, it's it's still an impediment and it's still an issue. And it's true what you say that, you know, just because you are, say, of a certain status or class and therefore you have had access to or you do have access to certain opportunities, which is ultimately, of course, what affirmative action or redress is about. It's about giving people access to these opportunities to, to meaningfully transform society. That's not to say that you don't suffer prejudice. But I'm sort of going back to like a first principled approach to what is the purpose of affirmative action or redress measures right and, and that's where I say that there may come a time in the future and I hope there does because it would mean that these measures are doing what they're supposed to be doing when we may need to say who are we seeking to benefit and why and and perhaps just reconfigure these categorizations in a way that is a little bit more nuanced or context sensitive that's really what I'm saying but I think it's very important that you that you make that point and that you that you emphasize that you know race Gender, these categorizations matter, that's why they are explicitly included in our constitution for that reason. That's why they are presumed to be unfair. You know, If you show that there's a differentiation on the grounds of race, that's, that's presumed to be unfair discrimination. If you show that there is differentiation between a doctor and a lawyer, that's just differentiation, right? The state has to differentiate between people all the time to regulate business and matters mm-hmm. and life. So, so the categorizations do matter, but I just think we need to be alive to the fact that if we're talking about substantive equality, which by definition requires a sensitivity of approach, we need to be wary about being too fixed and too rigid when it comes to mm-hmm. these categorizations. And that's where it's, it's important to go back to those principles set out in Van Heerden and to understand what our constitutional court has in mind. Just weighing on in on that once again. Uh, in terms of setting quotas for
0: redress methods, uh, does it hinder the, the idea of setting quotas? Does it hinder the achievement of substantive equality?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, for me, you've just hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> because, and this is this is a very topical issue, right? So, so just to explain what a quota is, I mean, a quota is essentially, as opposed to say a numerical target or goal, is it is it's a fixed allocation that is in some sense due. So we need X number of people of X race to be appointed at this level, or be promoted to this level. Um, and as a result, it necessarily entails excluding all others, such that those posts can be filled. A target, on the other hand, I mean these definitions are sort of thrown around fairly loosely, but they're a little bit slippery. A target or a goal, a numerical target or goal, is such that you say we would like X number of women, X number of people of colour and so forth, but there is room for discretion. So. A decision maker can say, well, actually in this instance, you know, workplace efficiency is such that we need XYZ or and this particular person has the expertise to provide that and to fulfill that vital public service, whatever it might be. So there's room to depart from a rigid roster or plan. Mm. And and I think that flexibility is vital. That's what saves something from being a quota, because quotas, certainly in the Employment Equity Act context, and I'm no labor lawyer, but those those are clearly invalid. They're unconstitutional. Recent case law, an SCA judgment handed down late last year, by the full bench of the SCA and Matopo delivered the judgment, actually extended this quota ban to the Non-Employment Equity Act context, which is quite drastic. So they essentially say that quotas outside of the Employment Equity Act, but within the context of Section 9.2 of the Constitution, are similarly constitutionally invalid because, as you say, that rigidity that adherence to rote is such that you are removing all consideration of context and as a result you tend to in fact undercut the goal of substantive equality. So in that particular case, which dealt with uh, the appointment of insolvency practitioners to transform the insolvency industry, you had a policy in place that set out a strict alphabetized roster. So we want 40% of the first lot of appointees to be women of colour born prior to 94 second lot, 30% men of colour born prior to 94, then 20% white women born prior to 94, and then 10% all young people of colour, white men and women born after 94. So it essentially penalised the youth, it discouraged the youth from entering this profession, and there was no room for the master to depart from that policy. Now that is a strict, mechanical roster. That is a quintessential example of a quota. And the court said no. How does that align with this guarantee of substantive equality? It has the in infa- effect of, of discouraging transformation to the industry, right? So, so that is why these, this quoted term is so uh, hotly contested, mm-hmm. because yes, you know, we recognize that sometimes you've got to set explicit goals, you've got to say, we, we need to achieve X, Y, Z, but you do not, and you ought not to do that in a vacuum, because that is in effect an affront to the people concerned.
0: So we pick up from here when we get back from the break and uh, I think we need to actually continue this discussion and Tanya you can weigh near when we get back because uh, it needs to be understood in our terms whether or not this will actually infringe on the rights of those who are not included in those quotas mm-hmm. because if we say that we're giving one person or one set of people uh, access to a certain position for instance we would then say we're excluding others and does that not infringe on their rights some may argue so when we get back we Continue this very interesting conversation. I'm, I'm really enjoying this actually. So uh, let's take a break.
1: Our radio station, the voice of the case.
0: Welcome back to Constitution Matters. I'm your host, Dakira Desai. In this episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss transformative constitutionalism, focusing on whether or not we need race-based and gender-based affirmative action to achieve transformation. Uh, a reminder to our listeners: if you have any concerns or questions on the Constitution, WhatsApp us on 072. 072- 2380712 or SMS us on 47913. Now, before the break, we were discussing with Professor Lauren Kahn whether or not the quota methods would actually redress issues of inequality. Uh, Kahn, um, Professor Kahn if you could please uh, just elaborate on what we discussed earlier and uh, just touching on the issue of whether or not having quota systems will infringe on the rights of those who are not included within that quota.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you raised a very valid point there just before the last ad break where you said we need to also look at, you know, the competing considerations for those affected and are they are their rights being unduly uh, infringed? Of course, that it comes down to proportionality really because we recognise that, I mean, you, you sort of said that the overarching question here is You know, do we need affirmative action, race-based and gender-based measures? And the answer is yes. You know, we do because, as Tanya's pointed out, we don't yet have an equal playing field. It's a very real thing in society. And, and of course, I think that it's it's important that we recognise that these are a vital, lawful, imperative, mandated by the constitution to achieve equality to transform society. But that doesn't mean that anything goes, right? And we touched on before the break this question of what is a quota and why is it offensive, and the, the sort of The one thread that I was following was this idea of a quota being so rigid and so, so devoid from context that it offends the goal of substantive equality rather than seeking to actually further it. But the related point, which is what you've just touched on and perhaps more significant, is that what the quota system in fact tends to do by serving as an absolute barrier, by implementing, for example, something that amounts to complete job reservation, you are what you are, in fact, doing is is infringing the dignity of an affected group, whether it be, you know, in this case, black persons born after 1994 were affected by the policy. I mean, they were actually prejudicially affected by a measure seeking to transform. It's entirely counterintuitive, but you know, go figure. So I think I think that is a very very important point. And I don't know if you would like me at this juncture to sort of to go through the first principles. Of the test for what is a valid affirmative action measure, or whether you'd like me to, to no, get that to is that fine. Later. We can
0: continue. I think that that is actually vital to attach it to what we've been speaking okay. to, uh, speaking about right now.
1: Perfect. So, so the Constitutional Court uh, Justice Mustaňaček in 2004, in the seminal case of Van Heerden. Uh, Tackled this question head-on: What is a valid redress or restitutionary measure or affirmative action measure within the meaning of Section 92 of the Constitution? And he formulated what is essentially a three-pronged litmus test. And our courts would do well, and, I, and you know they generally do go back to the first principle set out in this test, but sometimes not sufficiently so. And he really tailored it and carved it with quite. Uh, for me an impressive degree of sensitivity, um, context sensitivity and foresight. So what the test asks is, number one, does the measure in question target persons or categories of persons who have been disadvantaged by unfair discrimination? In other words, is it targeting the right people? Is it seeking to elevate and help the right people? So black persons versus white persons, women as opposed to men able-bodied people versus you know disabled and disabled versus able and so on and so forth. So it's not a hard threshold to meet here and you'll see I mean it's pretty obvious it flows from the historical self-consciousness of our constitution a recognition that certain categories of people suffered under the under the apartheid past more than others and we need to right the wrongs of those past. So here it's important to note that the courts do not consider whether the categories are under inclusive, of previously disadvantaged groups. So for example you won't see the court saying why are only black Africans targeted and not say colored persons to use the the, the term that is mm. thrown around in the judgments right. Now the court won't question that. It's, it's up to the executive to determine these policies and set out these ratios as it sees fit because of course we don't want to breach the separation of powers. But what of course the court can ask is does it overwhelmingly target those who are or were the victims of unfair discrimination. In other words, it's one thing to have a few white male beneficiaries but they can be windfall beneficiaries. Mm. We don't want measures that are overwhelmingly targeting white men okay? because mm. that is clearly counterintuitive. So that is the first question that the test seeks to address. The second one is, is the measure actually designed to protect or advance this class of people? These These persons that were disadvantaged or are disadvantaged by unfair discrimination. And this really is what is termed in legal terms, it's rationality testing. I mean, intrinsically we all know what rationality is, right? You've got to, you've got to be rational, you can't be arbitrary in, your, in the means that you, that you employ to achieve a particular goal. So the court will ask, is the measure that we've got in place here, is this measure reasonably likely to achieve its stated objective? Okay, so if the objective is to transform the insolvency industry, I ask you now, is it is a measure that discourages young entrants of color from the industry, is that reasonably likely to achieve the goal of transformation? No. I mean, on a simple rationality test, it must fail, surely. So we're not asking here for for the defender of the measure to show that they are necessary, that's too strict. They don't have to show that, they just have to show that there's a legitimate goal For a legitimate group and that the means that they seek to put in place to achieve that goal are logically connected or linked to the achievement of that goal and it's important to note that this means that measures cannot be arbitrary they cannot be capricious and they cannot display naked preference that that is problematic and in fact in the the insolvency case that I mentioned, both courts found the policy and issue to fail at this leg of the test. It was mm-hmm. irrational because it was so it, just, it was so rigid that it was in effect arbitrary, naked preference, and caprice. The third leg. And this is the final leg of the test, which is what you just touched on, is will the measure promote the attainment of equality in the long term? Now, that is a loaded question. That is not an easy question for any judicial officer or any person Mm -hmm. to answer. And really what that entails is is a value judgment where you're kind of balancing. It's a bit of a proportionality assessment. You're looking at a measure in the context of the goals of our Constitution, and you're saying, we want to create a non-racial, non-sexist society in which every person, is treated as a human of equal worth and equal dignity. Now, where you've got measures that amount to an abuse of power, where they impose substantial or undue harm, to use Moseneke's words in Van Heerden, those measures cannot fall within the purview of section 9.2. So essentially because they, are, they impose some kind of a disproportionate impact on the dignity of those affected, now obviously it's important to understand that when it comes to the assessment of these measures, if you imagine some sort of, if you imagine scales, right? The scales are pre-tipped in favour of the class that we're seeking to advance. They must be, right? It's not like it's a level playing field. We want to advance them, so that will weigh very heavily in the balance with the court. But other variables have to weigh in the balance, and if there is undue harm, excessive harm, if it's an absolute barrier. There's never a chance that somebody can get a foot in the door. that is excessive, and then it would fail on the Fuheerden test. And that's where quotas could potentially come mm-hmm. in. Professor, in our last five minutes of the show, if you could just
0: you have touched on it already, but in relation to race, race relations and gender-based inequalities, can you comment on whether distributive justice has been consistent with the Constitution? Um, we know that, uh, as you said, it, 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 the quotas is meant to level the playing field, but has it thus far been consistent
1: with the Constitution? Um, Has Distributive Justice thus far been consistent with the Constitution? I think the recent spate of case law, certainly the the most recent case, is such that it shows that these measures can and often do fall short of the mark, you know, and we need more diligent, more careful, more rigorous drafting conceptualization and implementation of these measures, if they are to really pass master. I mean, you you know, obviously the courts can't exercise too high a level of scrutiny here. They don't want to overstep, understandably. But, for example, in this insolvency judgment, which I understand has now been appealed to the Constitutional Court, it was very, very clear that the evidence on which government based the policy was was not only full of gaps and inaccuracies, in some cases, the minister didn't even advance proper evidence to justify the policy. So is, is that doing enough? Is that doing right by the constitutional vision? Well, surely not, right? I mean, if we're talking about substantive equality, we're talking about equality that responds to a lived reality that has in mind a particular impact. and And if you draft measures by rote in the abstract without due care, you're not going to properly advance distributive justice you may in fact undermine it as we saw in that judgment so perhaps that's a case illustration in point um i think there's still a lot of work to be done mm. put it that way
0: antonia would you like to weigh in here do you think that uh, as obviously a,
1: a student, a student yeah.
0: <laughs> do you think that uh, distributive justice has been consistent with the constitution
2: i don't know if i can if i can I, if i can answer whether it was mm. if it's consistent with the constitution because I'm not extremely familiar mm. with the legislation, but I can say, at least from empirical evidence, it's not as effective as it mm. should be. It's not as progressive, and it's not as speedy as it should be. And one of the reasons might be that it's not, the legislation is not constitutional. I don't know if this is an actual fact, that, it, that legislation is not constitutional, because there, it's, it's, it's a contentious argument about the fact that, um, some will argue that having race-based and gender-based affirmative action is a form of unfair discrimination, and it it does violate Section 9.3 of the Constitution. And other people say, well, no, but then Section 9.2 says it's okay. Mm. So you've got these contentious and competing arguments. So I can't speak to the constitutionality of legislation, but I can speak to empirical evidence that it's not working as fast Mm. as it should be.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, many of our listeners may also agree, because uh, evidently there's still a very big divide between uh, those who have and those who don't have. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to end up our conversation, Tanya, you have a very exciting initiative, would you like to tell us more about that?
2: Oh yeah, so National SLSJ is running a pad drive. So the pad drive is aimed at female students in high school who can't afford sanitary wear and because of this end up missing many days of school. Uh, It can amount to almost two months of school that they don't get to go to because They can't afford to buy pads, and they're forced to use uh, uh, soil, and they're forced to use leaves, and they're forced to use toilet paper, and this is unhygienic, and um, they they cause cuts, and they cause abrasions, and they cause infections. So the national branch is running a pad drive, and they're asking for people who are willing to contribute to do so. Uh, more information will be provided in the next, next uh, the next segment, which is next week, 29th of March. 6 o'clock. At 6 o'clock. Please <laughs> tune in and I'll give you more information of how you can help these
0: students. Awesome. That was a great show. Uh, thank you to my guests, Professor Lauren Khan and Tanya Magaisa. We encourage everyone to tune in to VOC 91.3 FM next week at 6 p.m. for the third con- episode of Constitution Matters. You are listening to Constitutional Matters with myself, Dakira Desai. Assalamu alaikum and good evening.